0: I want to try and look at uh, Acts chapter 12 as a whole. Uh, First, just a note on where it comes in the whole book of the Acts, which are, of course, not just the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the risen and ascended Christ through his apostles. And this particular chapter closes that part of the book of Acts that is dominated by the Apostle Peter. It's nearly the end, as it were, of what Peter has been the, the, the main apostle in. And the second half, going to the end of the Acts, is dominated by Paul, the Apostle Paul. Uh, we, you read of his conversion previously, of course, to Acts chapter 12. But as an apostle, he particularly features from Acts 13 onwards. Now, it's interesting to see that in both Cases, Uh, Peter and Paul, the the final two chapters in their sections have similarities. Uh, In the case of Peter, he is imprisoned by King Herod. In the case of the Apostle Paul, he is imprisoned by the Roman authorities. In both cases, uh, there is suffering for disciples and apostles of Jesus Christ, especially we may say, in the prisons of the first century AD Roman Empire. In the one case, Peter, there is supernatural deliverance. In the other case, in Paul's case, there is not deliverance. He remains in prison, as we read in the final two verses of Acts 28, and Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. At this point, he's under house arrest. He's not an entirely free man. But in both cases, God has the last word, not persecution. In the case of Peter, of course, it's obvious. Peter is released. The angel of God leads him out of prison and as Acts 12:24 makes clear, the word of God speeds forward as a result of all that's been happening. The word of God grew and multiplied. In the case of Paul, although he's in prison, he has great liberty and he receives all who come to him and there is a tremendous opportunity and also through his letters. And this reminds us that, yes, although suffering is the path for the church of Jesus Christ and uh, not less in the 21st century, as we know. Although suffering is the path, yet no earthly power can stand in God's way of the gospel advancing. And that is something for us to remember as we see so many evil forces uh, overtaking nations, infiltrating into the institutions of nations with their particular philosophies, their godless philosophies and godless morals. Let us never think that wickedness and Satan has the last word. Uh, God has the last word, and the gospel will go forward. Well, that by way of introduction, let us look a little more closely then at Acts chapter 12, and we can look at it under the heading first, see, of looming evil. Looming evil. If you Uh, just look to one or two verses we'll just look to one or two verses in the book of Acts up to this point and we see how persecution has been gathering against the early Christian church in Acts chapter 4 verse 2 and 3 we read how the Jewish rulers are grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead but their grief their, their vexation at this It doesn't stop there. They laid hands on them and they put them in hold in prison unto the next day, for it was now even So they arrest them and they imprison them overnight. Uh, We, of course, today, if that happens to a gospel preacher in our land, we think it's a, a terrible thing and it is a terrible thing. But that was just the beginning of persecution in the days of the apostles. Or in Acts chapter 5, verse 40... We read how the Jewish authorities agreed and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Once more they've been arrested, but this time they're physically beaten. And again, we realize how light are our afflictions in this country at this time compared to that. But then things begin to intensify. Persecution hots up. And so by the time we get to Acts 7, and the arrest, Acts 6 and 7, and the arrest of Stephen, uh, we read this at the end of chapter 7. Uh, Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon Stephen with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So here is Christianity's first martyr. Uh, I don't count the Lord Jesus as a martyr in, in that sense. Of course, he is the pioneer, the, the author, and the finisher of our faith. But after him, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and now someone has been stoned to death, and it's been, his death was Christ-like in its example, in its pattern. And this has been all at the hand of the Jews. But now we see another ingredient coming into the persecution, into the evil, in Acts chapter 12. At at this point, there steps in what we could broadly say was a civil power, a secular power. Now, I know that's not entirely accurate because Herod was an Edomite, and Herod professed uh, the Jewish religion, Uh, But he was also a servant and a friend of Rome. But he steps in and he attacks the apostolic band. And he kills the Apostle James, uh, who is the brother of John, with the sword. He has him beheaded. And Why did he do it? Because he wanted to please the Jews, especially the Pharisees even though secular sources tell us that the Pharisees despised him because of his uh, toadying up to Rome and because he was clearly not entirely convinced of Orthodox Judaism. But now we have the combining together of church, we might say church and state, in combination to try and crush this young church. Now, Herod (coughs) couldn't, Uh, As he arrests Peter, he couldn't just have him put to death straight away. Why not? Because it was Passover week. As it says in verse 3, these were the days of unleavened bread. It was the week leading up to the the eating of the Passover meal. And Jewish law did not allow trials and sentencing during Passover week. And as Herod was wanting to please the Jews, he honoured that. And so his intention there in verse 4 is to bring Peter out for what we might call a show trial. He intended after Passover, that should be translated, not Easter, Passover, to bring him forth to the people. Now, we've certainly got the flavour of Herod, haven't we, here? We've got an insight into the kind of man he was in what we've already looked at. And we see in verse 19 more of his character when eventually uh, Peter, they find that he's escaped. Uh, Herod has no mercy on the, on the guards. Uh, and then in verses 20 and following, we find him full of pomposity and pride and tyranny. He was one of the Herod family. Um, he was king, in, to be precise, he was King Herod Agrippa I, and his granddad had been Herod the so-called Great, the one who had had the baby boys uh, murdered in Matthew chapter 2. His uncle was Herod Antipas, and he had had John the Baptist beheaded. And Herod Agrippa, this Herod that we're looking at here, was, he counted among his friends... Caligula, and if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know that Caligula was a really nasty piece of work and probably insane as well. So we've got the state here in a particularly evil manifestation in terms of Herod's power, and we've got a completely antagonistic, hostile, so-called church persecuting the early church, the true church. And what we can say is that this was a particularly threatening scene. And we know how the story ends, but they didn't. Peter didn't. The disciples didn't. They didn't know how the story would end. And it seems that does seem at times that evil is very threatening and very powerful, even all powerful. It's when it feels like that that we need to come to Acts 12. Because we're not just thinking of ourselves in our own little cocoons. We're thinking of the Christian church across the world. We should be. We should be in our prayers and concern. Of course, there are Herods not only in palaces, but there are Herods in offices, in schools, in workplaces, in neighborhoods. People who are just evil. Uh, but we want to see something else here about Herod before we pass on uh, from this section of our, our message. Something else here about Herod. Notice, in fact, that perhaps he was rather a frightened man because look what he did with Peter in verse 4. When he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of four soldiers, four quaternions, to keep him. What they would do is, through the night watches, the squads would rotate. But all the time, uh, Peter was in chains and he had four soldiers guarding him. A total of 16 soldiers for one man. And a man who'd never taken up uh, violent revolution against the state. What does it tell us about Herod's uh, frame of mind? I think it tells us this, that behind all the tyranny and oppression, there was something in Herod that was a bit frightened. He was, in fact, at war with the God of the earth, fighting against God. And we again need to remember that as we think of evil, it manifested in the personalities, characters, lives, plottings of people. Let's not forget they are people. They are people. They had a mother, they had to have their Uh, discipline at home, they they were told to behave themselves. They're just people, they're just flesh and blood. Whatever they're doing, like now, they have a conscience and they know that one day, whether or not they will admit it, they must stand before the God of all the spirits of men. uh, Jesus says to us, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't be frightened of that Herod in your workplace, in your particular circle of acquaintances. Don't be fearful of them. So we have looming evil. Secondly, we have ascending prayer. The church senses the gathering of evil forces. It knows it's moved into a new kind of experience with Herod stretching forth his hands to take hold of some of the leaders. And what does the church do? Well, it, it uh, begins to pray. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. The early Christian commentator Tertullian said this, The angel fetched Peter out of prison, But it was prayer that fetched the angel. That was God's answer. Of course, this is unusual. It's exceptional. And I don't think for a moment that a supernatural answer like this is confined only to gospel days, but far, far more to the days of the very early church. God uses other means in his providence in these days. But it was prayer that fetched the angel. Now what was this prayer like? And in this we see a pattern as to how we should respond to gathering evil, how we should respond when we feel all forces are against us as individual Christians or as a church. What sort of prayer? Well, one thing you can be sure of, it wasn't lifeless prayer. Instant and earnest, we're told. Prayer was made without ceasing it doesn't say lengthy prayer it doesn't say full of good words what it has about it this thought is the, the fervency or to use the actual word that's there in the original uh, another translation of the word is agonizing prayer Prayer without ceasing. Fervent, instant and earnest prayer. That's what the margin says in our King James Bible. Instant, earnest. The same kind of prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just going through the motions. No, you know, that kind of prayer is a work of the Spirit in the heart of the believer. That kind of a prayer we utter in and through the Spirit. And it's not a case of being clever. It's a case, firstly, of actually meaning what you say and wanting it. Uh, Luther called prayer the sweat of the soul. Our prayers are not to be like these artificial fires, which you don't see so many about these days, where you have coals, the appearance of coals in front of the electric bars, And there's some kind of rotating fan that makes it look like smoke and vapour coming from the coals. It may look fine, but it's it's cold. Our prayers are not to be like that. We need to ask God to give us the spirit of grace and supplications, to help us to pray in the spirit. A prayer in the spirit could last two minutes. I say it's not us flogging ourselves to death, it's being in the Spirit, in Christ, being led by the Spirit. And notice too about the prayer, it was united without ceasing of the church unto God for him. There's a peculiar blessing, we know this from the Gospels and the teaching of Christ, a peculiar blessing of meeting together and agreeing to ask God of anything. And he promises that that kind of prayer will be heard, will be answered. Now, in this case, it seems that the prayer, this kind of prayer, went on for a long time. It went on for a whole week because these were the days of unleavened bread. And the answer didn't come until right just before Peter was due to be brought forth for trial. So sometimes we have to stick at it, maybe for a whole lifetime. Yes, for a whole lifetime just as those had to do, those believers who lived between 1660 and 1735, just as those believers had to do who lived between, say, 1450 and 1520. Sometimes we have to pray on. But it's instant, it's earnest, it's continuous, it's united. When I say continuous, I don't mean literally every single second, but I mean a habit of life and a habit of heart. That was what the prayer was like, the ascending prayer. What was the answer like? Well, we see, firstly, it was in God's time. It's right there at the, what we call the last minute, just before he was due to be brought forth, as verse 6 says. Why was it like that? Was God just being difficult to with the church? and making it sweat in the wrong sense? No, for two reasons. No doubt this would increase the faith of God's people, but we have to see, and the end of the chapter enables us to realize there's another focus here, which is to highlight God's victory over the forces of evil and how much that victory is magnified when at the very moment Herod thinks he's going to produce Peter and put him to death in a show trial and curry favor with the Jews and and be the top dog, as it were, in the Middle East, ancient Middle East. Just at that moment, God dashes the cup from his lips and he does it in a spectacular way. See, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision and we see it's an amazing answer it's a supernatural answer by the way you probably know this uh, Charles Wesley's hymn and can it be some of the verses are based upon this passage the angel of the Lord coming upon him a light shining in the prison Uh, he, he smites Peter on the side raises him up the chains just fall off from his hands he says to him get dressed gird yourself put your garments on follow me and he follows him, and he, doesn't, he thinks he's dreaming. And sometimes God's answers are, are so wonderful that we can think we're dreaming, of course. We, we can hardly believe it. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 126. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for us. There can be seasons like that, brothers and sisters, because the earnest prayers of God's people are mightier than all the forces of hell and wickedness. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And here, as he uh, thinks he has a vision, and they go past the first and second guard post or gate, and then they come to the final gate, the iron gate, and it just swings open of its own accord. It's miraculous from beginning to end. And they, he conducts him through the street and then suddenly he's gone. And then he wakes up and he realises it's not a dream. Here he is in the street of Jerusalem. Hours before his supposed execution. Actually, the answer to the prayer came even earlier than the angel of the Lord. I wonder if you noticed how. The answer to the prayer came even earlier. Where? In verse 6. When Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He was asleep hours before his execution probably sleeping better than Herod. Why? Because he was trusting God and God's peace was ruling his heart. The psalm says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so (coughs) he giveth his beloved sleep. There are various ways that God answers prayer and some of the answers are what we would call mundane answers, but this was a wonderful answer. That there he was, sleeping like a baby, uh, knowing that his cause was in God's hands and not fearing what the next day would bring. Let us pray for God's people as they face persecution. Let us pray that they will be able to sleep at night, especially if they have loved ones in prison. Let us pray for God's people that they may not Lose sleep over fear of what the next day will bring. Often the prospect of problems is far worse than the actual problems. And let us learn too from the reaction of the early church to the answers to the prayer that we do actually need to realise that our prayers are heard and so not be amazed when they're answered. You see how we can, I suppose we can excuse Rhoda. She's just overjoyed and she doesn't even bother to open the gate and runs back to tell them, it's Peter. But the response of the prayer meeting isn't wonderful, is it? Thou art mad. You're out of your mind. But she constantly asserted that he'd been released and it's him. But even then... It reminds us of the resurrection, the reaction of the disciples to the resurrection. They were so slow to believe it. And even now they're saying, well, it's his angel. Uh, But Peter just continued knocking. The hard fact, the hard objective fact was that it was flesh and blood, Peter at the door. So let us have an expectation that our prayers will be answered and not be surprised when they are answered. So we have evil looming, we have prayer ascending and then we have the kingdom of God advancing. We've seen how when it's all over the word of God grows and multiplies. We've seen how God's enemy is visibly humiliated and we see too at the end of Acts 12 how he is punished. The same angel that struck Peter's side and struck his chains, also struck Herod, but with very different results. As we read, uh, upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in a royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. It was with a very different effect. Josephus, uh, one of the the contemporary historians, uh, says that Herod lingered on for five days before he died. And that is not totally inconsistent, actually, with the Scripture here. It doesn't just tell us when he gave up the ghost. And uh, there are those uh, medics who would tell us that the worms could have been tapeworms. They could, a tapeworm could have this effect of suddenly causing internal explosion, as it were, internal blockage and sudden and, and awful disease. Uh, Josephus tells us his death was not just long-lasting but very painful. But we know that it was God who caused it. God was the first cause here. And why? Because he gave not God the glory. And all this happened at a time which Herod, if he'd known and respected the Old Testament as he claimed to, he would have known this was Passover time. This was the very season in which God delivered his people from another tyrannical king, the the Pharaoh of Egypt, when he brought his people out of slavery. And here is Herod taking... uh, God's place, Herod, assuming worship, uh, and God strikes him down. So we have the same angel bringing either judgment or mercy, and that does take us back to the Passover, doesn't it? And it does take us back to the angel of the Lord passing through the land of Egypt, striking the firstborn in every household, except for those that had the blood upon the doorposts and the lintel. Because they were sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. And that brings us back to the fact that God can save us, but only when we're trusting in the blood of Christ. Only when we're sheltering in his death, in his meritorious death, when we trust Christ as our personal saviour. Otherwise, God's hand on us is for judgment. It's a tremendous encouragement, isn't it, this passage. Here is Herod with all his weapons. He had uh, wealth. He had the service of the state. He had the soldiers, the prisons. He had the church, at least partly on his side. Uh, And yet, in the face of the spiritual weapons, the word of God and the prayer of God's people, he was powerless. We're reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that though we walk in the flesh we do not war after the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Our weapons are not the world's weapons. They're not marketing. They're not programming. They're not slick uh, presentation. They're not even the power of genuine wealth and genuine business ability or genuine military ability. We have different weapons. Those of you who've been able to see some of the pictures on the media of Afghanistan after the departure of the Western uh, Allies will will have noticed there have been tanks left and helicopters and armoured uh, personnel carriers and all kinds of things. Some of them, I don't know whether they, uh, the, the Americans and others destroyed the computer chips, I just don't know, but... It, Just to see them being paraded by the Taliban makes you wonder if they did destroy the computer chips. And this is all latest equipment for war, isn't it? Well, now here is our equipment, brothers and sisters, for the age to come, as the Bible calls in Hebrews this gospel age. The age to come, the present age to come. Here is our highest, most wonderful equipment. Prayer and the word of God. It's a match for all the computer chips and all the various equipments and armies uh, and uh, night vision sights and all the other things that man can amass for his purposes. Our weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and that's why the kingdom of God continues to advance in this present evil age. Amen.